you've got your Bible, I want you to take it and be finding your place in the fifth chapter of Amos. I want to return to Amos chapter 5. If you're brand new, I've been working my way through the book of Amos over the last several weeks, and we're in this fifth chapter, and it's a chapter that really has captivated uh, my mind, my heart, and really this morning, I want to look at just three verses, beginning with verse number 13, but while you're turning there, I, I came across a story about a man who set his pocket watch each morning as he passed a watchmaker's shop window on his way to work. His route to work took him through town. He walked to work, but he would stop in front of this jeweler, this watchmaker's shop, and there was this big clock in the window, and he would use that to set his own personal timepiece. Well, one morning, the man stopped. He was setting his pocket watch, but the watchmaker happened to come out the door of the shop, and the man said to the watchmaker, he said, excuse me, but I want to thank you for the exactness of your clock. I always set my watch by your large clock there in the window on my way to work. And the watchmaker told him that he was glad that he could be of service and asked him where he worked. And so the man said, well, I'm a job foreman over at the factory on the other side of town. And one of my responsibilities is to blow the factory whistle at exactly 12 o'clock noon every day. And the watchmaker said, you mean you rely on my clock? to set your own timepiece so that you can blow the whistle on time at the factory? And the man said, yes, that's right. To which the watchmaker said, you better not do that. He said, because I always set my clocks by your whistle. <laughs> now listen, here's the point. You had better pay attention to who you're taking your cues from. Uh, don't set your watch to the world's clock. Jesus said something in Luke chapter 6. He said, if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the ditch. And honestly, it's becoming more apparent by the day that that's most certainly the case with the world that we live in. The blind are leading the blind. One of the greatest Christian thinkers who ever lived, lived in this last century, but it was Francis Schaeffer. In 1976, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book entitled, How Shall We Then Live? And basically, in that book, he presents a snapshot of Western civilization, and he makes the point that ideas always have consequences. And really, he used ancient Rome as an example. But the argument in his book is that our basic beliefs, what he refers to as our presuppositions, the things that we assume to be true without arguing for them, he says that these always work themselves out through our actions. If you want to know what a person truly believes, then that person's beliefs will come out through the way that they behave, the way that they live. You would call this your worldview. Rome had a Caesar, an authoritarian type. And eventually, Schaefer makes the case that this kind of contributed to the fall of Rome, the collapse of Rome from within, because its ultimate ground or base was placed in a finite man. Ironically, it was under Roman persecution that Christianity began to flourish in the first century, 
because it placed its base in a personal, infinite God whose truth is absolute, a God who had revealed himself to humanity, and that revelation is final. And so Christianity then helped shape Western civilization, Western thought. And that goes all the way up to the Renaissance period and even the Enlightenment period and how a change in thinking once more put man at the center of all things. And that's kind of where we are in society even now. But listen to what Schaefer said. He said, it's a simple but profound truth. If there are no absolutes by which to judge society, then the society is absolute. Society is left with one man or an elite class filling the vacuum left by the loss of Christian consensus which originally gave us form and freedom. He says it seems that there are only two alternatives in the natural flow of events. First, an imposed order. Or second, our society once again affirming that base which gave freedom without chaos in the first place God's revelation in the Bible and his revelation through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, before that was true of the West, folks, it was true of ancient Israel in Amos' day. Because in Amos' day, prosperity and affluence fostered a sense of hypocrisy, spiritual uh, complacency, idolatry, And the religion of divine revelation was rejected in favor of one of personal convenience, where man became absolute. Idolatry at the heart of the nation gave way to injustice. It gave way to inhumanity as God's truth was pushed to the fringes of Israel's society. And really, the best way to describe the day is what the prophet says in verse 13 of our text, where he said that it was an evil time. An evil time. The word means wicked or distressing. The Apostle Paul had something similar to say in Ephesians 5 when he told believers to be careful how they live, not as unwise but wise, making the most of every opportunity. Listen to this. Because the days are evil. The days are evil. Now, in what sense are the days evil? What does that mean? Uh, when Amos is describing his day as an evil time. What does that mean? It's not evil in the sense of the calendar itself, like some superstitious belief about Friday the 13th, that kind of thing. That's not what Scripture is talking about. But evil in the sense that the days are under the influence and the direction of the evil one, the devil. Evil in the sense that this present world system is opposed to God and his truth. And so Amos is confronting a generation that had turned its back on God's truth. And the the, the evidence of how they had turned their back on God's truth was the way that they were taking advantage of one another, mistreating one another. Justice had fallen in the streets. God sends Amos into the north with this message. Now, if you go back through chapter 5, he's exposed a religion that leaves life unchanged. Amos has exposed hypocrisy, where he paints this picture of worshipers who flock to their shrines. They go through the motions of religion, but they leave worse off than when they came. They had a form of religion, but no real substance. 
Idols had assumed the place that should have been reserved for God alone. And the consequences of their idolatry, you go back up to verse seven, uh, he says that justice had been turned to wormwood, righteousness had been cast down to the earth. Verse 10, he says of his day, they hate him who reproves in the gate, they abhor the one who speaks the truth. Verse 11, he indicts his society by saying, you trample on the poor, you exact taxes of grain from him, also you can build your own houses of stone and plant vineyards for yourself. So he's he's exposing greed and a materialistic bent to life. Verse 12, uh, you afflict the righteous, you take a bribe, you turn aside the needy in the gate. So the picture that he's painted of Israelite society at this point, it's not pretty to say the least. These are the marks of an evil and corrupt society, days which can best be described as evil. And so that brings us to verse 13, and let me tell you, in verses 13, 14, and 15, I really believe that we'll find a blueprint here for how God's people can live godly lives even against the backdrop of an ungodly day. Look at what the Bible says, verse 13, therefore he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil that you may live, and so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Now I want to speak from this subject this morning, principled living in unprincipled times. Principled living in unprincipled times. When you think about the time in which you and I live, I mean, honestly, we live in a society that's unlike any in the past. We live in a world of electronic media. We live in a world of mass communication. On a daily basis, we're exposed to a barrage of visual images. We see anything and everything that happens in our world of significance, and we don't just see it one time, but we see it played out over and over and over again on social media, all of the network news channels. Whether it be catastrophe that happens in some remote part of the globe, whether it be disaster or tragedy, everything is paraded before our watching eyes, and it becomes shared experience for us all. I mean, literally, we see it all whether it be massacres of children in schools, shootings in movie theaters, churches. Technology brings all of us to the front row and gives all of us a front row seat. Now, let me tell you something. I can't help but believe that this has helped contribute to the social anxiety of our times. I can't help believe that this is contributing to the short fuses that all of us have with one another. We're living in some perilous times. We're not isolated from anything, but we're overloaded with everything. And so could it not be said that the days in which we live are evil days? Even last days? You consider all that's happening in our world, how do we as Christian men and women absorb all of it? How do we take it in? How do we turn it into motivation so that we can be effective witnesses for Christ in such an evil day. Because I believe that God has a very real way that he wants his people to respond to the evil of the day. And I do believe that Amos helps provide a blueprint of what that looks like. 
Which, by the way, there are really two extremes. You can get caught up in two extremes as far as life is concerned. Uh, You can be so overexposed to evil and the evil of our times to such a degree that it makes you numb and insensitive as a person. You're just numb by it all. Nothing moves you anymore. On the other hand, you can find yourself so self-absorbed with your own little world that you push all of that out of your mind and you push all of that out of your life and you end up living for yourself. And even as Christians, if we're not careful, we can fall into the trap of living for ourselves. So how is it that we can strike a balance? How can we live principled lives in such an unprincipled time? Well, notice at least three things from these verses here in Amos chapter five. Number one, it involves the prudence of keeping silent. Wisdom understands that in an evil day, there's prudence in keeping silent. There's wisdom when it comes to guarding your speech. Look at what's said there in verse 13. Therefore, he who is prudent, that is, uh, the one who's circumspect, the one who's wise and informed, will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Which, by the way, do you know that it's an impossibility for you to be talking and learning at the same time? It's impossible for you to be talking and listening at the same time. And by the way, there's a reason that God gave us two ears and one mouth. Because he wants us to listen twice as much as we speak. But honestly, we end up doing the opposite. We talk twice as much as we listen. And oftentimes, it costs us big time in the long run and in the grand scheme of things. But implicit within this this verse is this idea that those who truly had something worthwhile to say were being pushed to the fringes of a society who hated the one who reproved in the gate. Society abhorred the one who dared to speak the truth. Those with the loudest voices and the biggest platforms were the ones doing all the talking, but it was the foolish conversation of a bunch of empty windbags. And Amos says that the prudent will keep silent in such a time because it's an evil time. They didn't get swept up in the frivolous chatter of society. Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible teaches us that there is a time to speak and there is a time to remain silent and wisdom discerns the times. Some commentators see the prudent there that's mentioned in verse 13 as a reference to those who wanted to succeed in society. They wanted to be accepted by society, yet perhaps out of fear, maybe even out of self-interest, they didn't speak up. They knew the status quo in Israel was no good, but why speak up and risk rocking the boat? And it was too costly a thing to do in their estimation. Now, whether that's true or not, we don't know. All I know is what the verse is simply saying, that the one who is prudent will keep silent in such a time because it's an evil time. Solomon says something in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 when he says there's a time to keep silent and there's a time to speak up. You know, you can be the type of person who you pride yourself in just this relentless expression of thought. We live in an age where speaking your mind is considered to be a virtue. We wear that as as a badge of honor. I speak my mind. It doesn't matter who I offend, how I say, whatever. I just speak my mind. 
And yet, should Christians be known for speaking their mind no matter the situation? Listen, Proverbs 29.11 says, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. On the other hand, you've got those who never make waves, who, who never have something to say on an issue simply because it would mean they get put in a box. And so they always speak what their audience wants to hear. I'll never say anything out of the risk of offending someone. I'm always going to tell my audience what my audience wants to hear. You know, the Bible has a description for such a person. They're called false prophets, false teachers, those that cater to the itching ears of their audience. So you've got these extremes, speaking in a way that takes no thought for a person whatsoever. That's a foolish thing to do. And yet, speaking in such a way that makes a person ultimate, that also is a foolish thing to do. So there's got to be some wisdom shown as far as how we use our words, especially in evil days such as these. Now, I want to show you a couple things about our words, just as sort of a little side trip. Uh, Keep your finger here in Amos 5 and go to the book of James, the third chapter. James has a lot to say, perhaps more than anyone, about wisdom and discretion as far as our words are concerned. In James chapter 1, verse 19, he says, Know this, beloved brethren, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And again, we, we get this in reverse. Often we're quick to speak and slow to hear. But wisdom is quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. He says in verse 26 of that same chapter, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So what if you consider yourself an upstanding person? So what if you consider yourself to be a religious person? If you don't bridle your tongue, You're only deceiving yourself because your religion is worthless. Then you get into chapter 3, and he he, he gives an extended treatment on this subject of our words and the power of the tongue, James chapter 3. And really, he deals with a couple of things in that chapter. Uh, He talks about constructive words and how constructive words can be helpful. Notice verse 1, he addresses those who teach. He says, not many of you should be teachers, knowing that we're going to be judged with a greater strictness. Why? Because teachers use their words. Words are vehicles for communicating thought. And so the point is, he's saying in this chapter, even though it's a small part of the body, the tongue has tremendous potential to influence. Curtis Vaughn has said that it can sway men to violence. It can move them to noble deeds. It can instruct the ignorant, encourage the dejected, comfort the sorrowing, and soothe the dying. Or, our words can crush the human spirit, destroy reputations, spread distrust and hate, and even bring nations to the brink of war. The power and the potential of our words. Solomon says it this way in Proverbs, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. So constructive words, uh, words that are essential for instruction. 
words that indicate spiritual maturity. Look in verse two, James three, he says, we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. That word perfect there uh, means complete or finished. It's this idea of maturity. He says, if you don't stumble in speech, you're perfect, able to bridle your whole body. So the idea is, all of us are in God's classroom and we're learning every day when it comes to the wisdom of our words. We never arrive. There's the potential for us to sin with our speech if we're not careful. And by the way, in an evil age, it becomes that more important that we're careful with what we say. Because you'll get a free pass in society speaking a certain way especially a post-Christian society that you never would have been given the past in days gone by. And just because society around you says it's okay doesn't mean that God says it's okay. So constructive words, these can be helpful. But James also says that careless words, these can be harmful. And he uses some illustrations in James chapter three, uh, how something so small and concealed as the tongue can cause such damage. He says it's like a little, a little spark that ignites a raging inferno. If we were to go out west and talk to some of our friends out in the western part of the country, they would tell you how dangerous it is for a lightning bolt to ignite a raging inferno in certain parts of California, the west, Things can get so dry out there, all it takes is just a simple spark to literally ignite a raging inferno. And James says that the tongue is the same way. You can ignite a world of hurt and a world of destruction through some careless word that you speak. I don't know who it was that said this and coined the phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but word can never hurt me. Whoever it was that came up with that, was an idiot. (laughs) Just to put it bluntly. Because let me just tell you, sticks and stones may break your bones, but broken bones can heal in a relatively short amount of time. But sometimes the words that people speak takes us even a lifetime to get over. Foolish words, careless words, faultless words spoken in the anger of a moment can destroy a relationship. Destroy, maim, hurt, wound. And let me tell you something, men and women, an evil day such as ours demands that we be prudent and wise when it comes to how we speak and what we say. So ultimately then, you come back to this question, when is it right to speak up and when is it not? When should you say something? When should you not say something? When's the best time to be silent and the best time to speak up? Well, let me just be honest. I think that there's a grid as far as what the scripture says about words. If you know what the Bible actually says about words, I think it will provide you with a grid and a helpful framework to answer that question especially when you consider how the Bible commends honest speech, honest words. Proverbs uh, 6 says that a lying tongue is one of the things that God hates. So lying is never sanctioned as far as words are concerned. It's never the right time to be dishonest. 
The Apostle Paul tells the church in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, having put away falsehood, let everyone speak truth to his neighbor. So you should ask yourself this question when you feel like saying something or speaking up. Is what I'm saying the truth? Are my words honest words? Is my speech, is it honest speech? Not simply my spin on a situation, not simply my opinion on any given situation, not simply what I've heard parroted to me, which may or may not be accurate. Are my words true and are they honest? And that will help you answer that question. Should I speak or should I remain silent? Another thing to consider is how the Bible commends speech that warns. Did you know that we as God's people ought to use our words to warn other people and especially those that we love? Proverbs 27 verse 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. You ever face the uncomfortable task of telling a person you love the honest truth even though it was painful for that person to hear? By the way, you're not doing anyone any favors when all you do is use flattery. Flattery is the tool not of someone who's looking to deepen a relationship, but it's the tool of someone who wants to use closeness to a person uh, as a means for personal gain. Flattery is the tool of someone who has manipulation in mind. Manipulation tells you what you want to hear so that you in turn will give that person what they want. I think about Nathan the prophet. Uh, He used his words to confront David, a man after God's own heart, someone that he loved when David had committed sin. Nathan didn't show up using flattery, telling David only what David wanted to hear, but instead Nathan used his words in obedience to God to speak truth into the situation. So you should ask yourself this question, in an evil time when you have an opportunity to speak, should I speak, should I remain silent? One question you should ask is, if it's a rebuke, if it's a word of warning, am I speaking the truth to someone who desperately needs to hear it? I could go on. The Bible upholds words that defend the truth. Jude says we're to contend earnestly for the faith. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Sometimes you have to use your words as a believer to confront error, to confront lies, to confront false worldviews. And oftentimes, this is a tool that we use, that we employ when we're trying to witness to someone, to share our faith with someone. And that's not always a comfortable thing to do, but let me tell you, the Spirit of God empowers God's people. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and he says, in light of that authority, I want you to go into the world, and I want you to make disciples. And part of making disciples means that we use our words to combat and to confront false ideologies that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. But let me tell you something. There is no word more powerful than the word of the gospel. There is no word more abiding and everlasting than the word of the living God. And I think it was Adrian Rogers who said, you don't have to defend the lion. All you have to do is turn him loose. And so it is with God. So here's the thing. In an evil time, sometimes God's people have to use discretion. Is it a time to speak? Is it not a time? Should I just remain silent? 
Is what I'm saying honest? Is it the truth? Does it uphold righteousness? Another question to ask, does it show respect and civility? Something that has been lost in our generation, by the way. The ability to have civil disagreement, be civil about it. We're living in a time where everybody wants to retreat into their corners and yell at everybody else. It's what I'm saying, civil. So the Bible says that what I say is important, but even how I say it is important. Evil days demand we be discerning, and so says the prophet Amos. Now that's the prudence of remaining silent. Now notice a second thing. Evil days demand we choose our words wisely, but Amos also says that evil days demand that God's people seek good. So notice the practice of seeking good. Verse 14. Seek good and not evil that you may live, and so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. So the good had been lost in Israel's idolatrous pursuits. The people had exchanged what was truly good for a cultural counterfeit of their own making. Seek the good. By the way, good has a definition. Micah 6.8, the Bible says, He has told you, O man, what is good. So as sovereign creator, God is the only one who's qualified to tell man what is good. He defines goodness. You go back to Genesis 1 and you see how God created everything. And after God created, he declared that it was good. Genesis 1.31, God saw everything that he made and behold, it was very good. God is the source of good. God is the one who gives good a definition. You'll notice that that word seek here in Amos chapter 5, it's used at least four or five times in the chapter. You go back up to verse 4, God says to his people, seek me and live. Don't seek Bethel, Gilgal, and Beersheba. These were the places of worship, places of idolatrous worship that had become idols in the hearts of the people. The place became more important than the person to whom the places ultimately pointed, God himself. And God's saying, don't seek your life in places, but seek me and live. Seek the Lord and live, verse 6. So again, verse 14, Amos is calling God's people to seek the good, but only after he's called upon them to seek God in the first place. It's only when we seek good, or God, that we can truly seek the good which God himself defines. And that's the answer to a wandering heart, by the way. It's not that we clean up our own life and we get our acts straight so that God will accept us. That's not the gospel. It's to come back to God. It's to, it's to do an about face, call upon the Lord. Let me tell you, before we seek the good, we've got to seek the Lord. How true it is that the world around us wants good, but it doesn't want God. And you can't have the good without having God and the one who defines what's good. And the world will never experience lasting goodness until it first of all embraces God. You say, what are you saying? Can, can a person that doesn't know Jesus, a person who's lost, can that person never experience good? That's not what I'm saying at all. Because even a person that doesn't know the Lord can appreciate beauty. A person that doesn't know the Lord can express talent. 
write songs, compose lyrics that move people, can paint exquisite works of art. Why? It's because that person's made in the image of God. That's why that person's even able to do all of that, even if that person doesn't acknowledge the existence of God. But here's the thing. All of us, all of humanity, both the saved and the unsaved, are the recipients of God's common grace. You know what the doctrine of God's common grace says? It says that God is the one who causes it to rain both on the just and the unjust. This morning I stepped out on my back deck. It was just before six o'clock. I had a cup of coffee in my hand and I was watching the lightning in the thunderheads. The clouds were getting close. Felt a couple raindrops on the back of my hand. I'm pretty sure there was no one up at that early morning hour begging God or asking God to send rain on our part of the world. There may have been, I'm not aware of it, but God causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. That's his common grace. The common grace of God, uh, things like a warm ray of sunshine on your face, a cool drink of water on a hot day, the sound of children playing in the backyard laughing, the cycle of the seasons. Folks, let me tell you, God showers a million good things on the lives of people every day, things that we are completely oblivious of as extensions of his common grace to humanity, things that we take for granted. And all of it is good, and it points me to the originator of all that is good, God himself. The Bible says that it's the goodness of God that leads men to repent. All of these and more are simple gestures of a divine, benevolent being who's telling you that your life matters, who's telling you that you are valuable to him, but your sin has got to be dealt with. So common grace is not enough as far as salvation is concerned. You need to experience saving grace. Because saving grace is only found at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. And the common grace of God is intended to bring you to the saving grace of God. I don't want to go through my life acting like a wild hog under an acorn tree, just gorging and gorging and gorging away, completely clueless, never looking up, wondering where in the world the acorns are coming from to begin with. But that's a perfect picture of humanity that just is a recipient of the common grace of God but completely clueless as far as the source is concerned. And God has got to turn the light switch on, doesn't he? That's the role of God's spirit who works to convict, who works, works to convert. It's why we've been entrusted with the gospel message that, man, we've got to preach, we've got to declare, we've got to share it, we've got to use our words in an evil day to point our generation to the hope of Jesus Christ. So this is so very practical. In an evil day, how should God's people live? God's people ought to live in such a way that they're prudent with regard to their speech. Oh, but man, we understand the practice of seeking the good. Seek good and not evil that you may live. So says the Lord. First part of verse 15, notice he says, hate evil and love good. So you look at the verses held together, there's, there's, it's a double-sided coin. Seeking good, loving good, the other side of the coin involves hating evil. That is, we hate that which God himself hates. It's not enough to simply love good. Faithfulness to God demands that I hate what he hates. 
He is a God of grace and love, but let me tell you something about our God. He is not a spineless jellyfish. He is not a moral invertebrate. He's a holy God who's fiercely opposed to all that is not in keeping with his holy and righteous character. And were he not, then he would not be a good God. So God in his infinite holiness, God in his infinite mercy, man is sinful. His sin demands that God, God has to punish sin. So that brings us to a quandary. How then can we be saved? Let me tell you something. That's why God has a cross. And there's a cross. And at the cross of Jesus Christ, the holiness of God and the mercy of God is both on display where God incarnate in Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself, suffering, bleeding, dying for man's sin as God's wrath is poured out upon God's Son so that God's creatures could be forgiven, could be rescued, could be brought from death to endless life, but it has to come through the cross. There is no other way. So seeking the good. One last thing. I've got, to, I've got to finish, but one last thing. Evil times, principled living in an unprincipled time. It demands that we're prudent as far as our speech is concerned. The practice of seeking good. But, but what about this? The priority of establishing justice. It involves the priority of establishing justice. And you see, this really gets to the heart of the message of Amos. Hate evil, love good, and establish justice in the gate. That word justice there translates a word that speaks of the righteousness of God that's brought to bear on our social relationships. It's the application of what is right in society. Again, because idolatry was so rampant in Israel, that gave rise to inhumanity and injustice because God's people were not loving God with all their heart, soul, and mind. They weren't loving their neighbor as themselves. The result of this was just a society that was on the brink. Chaos in terms of relationships and all of that. There was no justice to be found in the gate. There was a perversion of justice but God's people had been setting the little watch of their life to the world's clock and not to God's clock. And that's the issue. Which, by the way, it's important that we understand the world wants to throw around the language of justice these days, but I've told you the world uses the same vocabulary but has a very different definition than what God has. And it is absolutely essential that we as the people of God be discerning the word justice here is talking about the righteousness of God that's brought to bear upon human relationships. In his law, God stated that his covenant people were to be just, fair, righteous in their dealings with one another. And that was a reflection of his own character. So that's why righteousness and justice, these are two words used interchangeably often throughout the Old Testament. It's important that we understand that. So here we are in society in the West, we're witnessing the unraveling of society. We're seeing different definitions 
The world says this is good and it's contrary to what God has said is good as far as his design is concerned and as far as his word is concerned. Here's the question I've got for us. How now shall we live as the people of God in such a time? Do we retreat from the world? Do we all just become a bunch of hermits and monks and join some monastic order? That's not what God has in mind for his people. When he says, I want you to be salt and I want you to be light. Salt was a preservative. Light was intended to illuminate. That's what God wants his people to do. So let me tell you something. Establishing justice in the gate means that we take the gospel and we take the truth of God into the marketplace of ideas. It means that you leverage your occupation as a Christian man or woman. You leverage it for the gospel's sake. You leverage it for the glory of God. Listen, you don't love your life unto death, but you're willing to lay down your life for the sake of Christ and that all men might know that there is a God in heaven. Even if it means you're socially ostracized. Even if it means that the church is marginalized. An evil time is not a time for the church to remain silent and cower down in fear. Yes, we've got to be wise in what we say and how we say it. We've got to seek what is good. But men and women, we've got to seek to establish justice in the gate. True righteousness as God himself defines it. It's gospel living. It's gospel living. I love the fact that Amos refers to the remnant there in verse 15. Isn't it interesting that in such an evil time, in such a difficult day, there was a remnant of believers who were looking diligently for how to serve God in such a time. Isn't it an amazing thing that no matter how dark the days get, God has a remnant? You see this throughout the Old Testament. You see it illustrated in the life of the prophet Elijah, don't you? You remember when Elijah is confronting those prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel? Prior to that, he has this episode. Uh, after that, he's got this episode. He's, he's depressed. He's defeated. He's discouraged. God has to get a, a, the attention of his servant. Elijah comes to this conclusion, I'm the only one who's serving you. I'm living in an unprincipled time. I'm living in evil days. I'm the only one who's serving you. And God says, quit your pity party. I have yet reserved 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You don't know who they are. You don't know where they are. But God says, I know where they are. And I know who they are. And Amos says something like this. He says, it could just be that the Lord will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Interesting that he uses Joseph there to refer to the house of Israel. Joseph, if there's anybody in Scripture who illustrates how God is with his people in the darkest of times, it's Joseph. Here's a man in an unprincipled place, a man living in an evil time, a man who's a beacon of light, who's falsely slandered, who's accused, who spends time in prison, but the providence of God, the hand of God is on his life. And one statement keeps being made about Joseph in, in Genesis, those closing chapters of Genesis. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. And men and women, let me just be honest with you. So long as you and I are living a repentant life, we're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter how difficult the days or how dark the hour, thank God that he's faithful to the remnant of Joseph. Wow, what a word, what a word. Let's stand for prayer. Every head bowed, every eye closed.
Do you need some wisdom with how to live your life in such a difficult hour, at such a difficult time in history? Then listen, let me encourage you with this thought. It's not by accident that you and I are alive at such a time, but it's by the providence of God. Put all of your faith and all of your confidence in the power of the gospel and the power of God's spirit. And those who look to Christ, they will never be disappointed. Do you know Jesus as your Savior this morning? I mean, do you live with the understanding your sin has been forgiven, Christ is your Savior, He's the Lord of your life? If not, then listen, right there in an attitude of repentance and faith, can I just urge you to seek the Lord and live? Look to Christ and be saved. Believe that He died for your sin on the cross and that he rose again from the dead. And the scripture says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And the Bible says that if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, the way that you tell the world that you've come to faith in Jesus Christ is through being baptized. Have you been baptized? We're going to be baptizing just a few short weeks away. I'd encourage you to come talk to one of our pastors, talk to me. Get in touch with us throughout the week. We invite you to come. Lord, thank you for your word. How it calls us to principled living in an unprincipled time. Thank you for the power of the gospel, for the hope that we have in Jesus, and for the grace of God. You're a God who rescues the helpless. You will not forget your own in their hour of need. Thank you for such wonderful hope. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.